This is MC Fireside Chats, a weekly show devoted to the outdoor hospitality industry, hosted by Brian Searle and Kara Sismadia. You'll hear from special guests that focus on topics to help your business succeed, all backed by Modern Campground, the most innovative news source in the industry. Welcome, everybody, to another episode of MC Fireside Chats. My name is Brian Searle with Insider Perks. I'm doing the show alone today. Kara is actually in a super high-level government meeting here in Alberta advocating for the camping and RV industry. So she's unable to join us today. We're also missing Mr. Scott Foose, who's a regular guest. He's going to be missing kind of the whole summer season. Uh, a lot of success over there at Horizon Outdoors. And so we're really proud of, of him and the work that he's doing. But we'll miss him and we'll have him back in the fall. And then Casey Cochran is also in a important business meeting today. We've got who we've got today, but I think we've got a really good staple and group of guests here. They appear with us once a month. We've got Mark Kep, obviously. We've got Randy Hendrickson. We've got Ivar, who's on his second show from Camping Dreams over in Europe. And of course, we've got Sandy as well. Uh, so guys, what is, uh, and before I start, I should say, we're really thankful to have our sponsor, Fireside Accounting, back for this episode. If you don't know who they are, it is Lindsay Fu. She is a great accountant. Her and her team do a lot of good work for RV resorts across the country specializing in the outdoor hospitality industry, all that kind of niche stuff that you can really use to take advantage of taxation and rules and ways to save money and just kind of or keep yourself organized because I know it's something I don't like to do, numbers and things like that. So uh, really grateful that Fireside Accounting is the sponsor of the show uh, and thank them so much. So guys, what's on uh, what's on your radar? What's been happening in the last month or so? Anything interesting? This last weekend was Memorial Day weekend, obviously kicking off the camping season for 2022. And the word on the street is that it was a good weekend. People had uh, full parks in, in most areas. The only areas where I'm starting to hear a little bit of grumbling from are, are the more destination locations, places that are out of the way where most of their guests are traveling over 150 miles to get to them. Those locations are feeling the fuel prices right now. But the other ones that where most of their guests may be over 150 miles away, but they can't, they have a backup or there's a close city by, nearby. They're getting cancellations from those longer distance travelers, and those are being filled in by the closer folks. So we're going into an interesting camping season, and Memorial Day kicked it off. Yeah, it's an interesting thing for me, Mark. And, and obviously, you're right, fuel prices play a part of it, but I think it's a larger picture around inflation in general, because we talked about this on the show, I think, a week or two ago. It's not just fuel prices. It's the tomato that costs 30 cents more that adds up. It's the everything, right? It's the electricity being up 40% over last year. But what's interesting to me, and you mentioned Memorial Day like last week before that was our long weekend here in Canada. And so I guess I get two of them in a row. That's a benefit to being an American in Canada. But that was the kickoff of their camping season. And what we're seeing, and I've touched on this briefly, I don't want to really dive down the inflation rabbit hole on the show. But one of the things that we've seen is the longer trips are we've managed to see those stabilize in the last few weeks since I talked about it last on the show. But I think a lot of the local traffic, at least in the parks that we do at you know, marketing for and things like that, the data that we collect, yeah. is there's an uncertainty. And I think after kids get out of school, they're holding out hope to maybe that gas prices or inflation moderates to where they can take a longer trip. And so they're not booking the local trip quite yet in the numbers that we want to see because they don't know what they can afford or where they want to go yet. So I think they want to take that trip but they're not sure, so they're holding out and not booking locals. So I, my hunch is, second two weeks of June, we're going to see a flood of bookings here from local people. 
Yeah, I agree with that. It's a compression of the reservation timeline. We experienced this obviously during COVID, but we're not seeing the long bookings because of the uncertainty out further and people are, are going a little bit more tighter. I live in a destination area up in the Black Hills of um, South Dakota. I'm in Wyoming, right next to them. And what's interesting is the parks are filling up here like normal. People are driving down the interstate with their fifth wheels at speed. Like they're not going 55. They're doing 80 until on a big fifth wheel behind them. And if you look at the overall demand picture for fuel in the United States, there has not been a drop in demand. Even with high prices, people are still buying the fuel. I mean, in, in the end, camping is the most affordable way to travel, even with all the expenses that add up. And so going into uncertain times, one of the things that we're hearing from consumers is that they're going to go camping. Why not? I need to get away, so I'm just going to go camping. And so it, it's going to be a very interesting year. And like I said, Memorial Day weekend was a good weekend for a lot of folks. So it's, it's a good sign that we're, again, in an industry that is going to be resilient in the face of significant headwinds. Yep. I agree. That's what we're seeing too with all the parks that I work with. Basically what they were reporting back to me after the holiday weekend was that over 50% of the people that came and camped with them were considered locals and that most of the others up to 90 or 95% were within that 150 miles. But what was interesting was that at the last minute, they had a lot of calls with people adding an extra day. So they either added a Thursday or they added a Sunday because they wanted to come in early. And so they actually picked up additional income, even at the higher rates for those that were using dynamic pricing because those rates had gone up. So that was good to hear. They were very pleased with the turnout for what they had as far as the parks that I work with. Ivar, I'm super curious over in Europe, is there a kickoff? I probably should know this, but is there a kickoff to the camping season holiday like Canada and the US have? Or, and how is it being impacted by pricing over there? Normally, the, the campsites in Southern Europe, most of them start somewhere in the middle of If Eastern is not too late, they take Eastern as a kickoff. In the last two COVID years, we saw that there are several countries that kept up a great occupation, great occupation on, on campsites. The Netherlands, France, the France travel within their own country almost to 100%. Germany, a piece of Austria and Italy. But if it comes to Spain in the Southern part of Italy, you saw that uh, they didn't manage to get the locals to their campsites and they had two terrible years. Gas prices here is also a big problem. The German government just started from today. Gas prices uh, went down 30 cents. They released us some taxes for the next three months, June, July, and August, traveling time. So we're really glad uh, they did so. Uh, we hope we get the radius a little bit bigger again. Because in the last two months, you saw the last minute bookings, really travel tomorrow, travel next week. And the distances were pretty short. So with the lower gas price here in Germany now, we hope that the, the people start booking the rest of uh, the high season. But to be honest, most campsites in the southern part of Europe already have a great occupation uh, this summer. We expect a great year. Awesome. That's good to hear. Randy, anything to contribute? It's really funny. Funny, I hope, in, in a good way. When I look back over the years when there's been fuel issues, there's been a bump in fuel prices and whatnot. In, in years past, it was a fairly predictable pattern in that you knew people would take shorter length trips, but of longer duration stay. And that's been pretty much true during this gas issue as well. 
It's never been the overriding thing that determines camping behaviors, though. It, it alters where you go and how long you stay, but you're still going out. And we had some of our best years during bad fuel price years. But what's different this time around, <clears throat> we've never been here before, right? There's no playbook. There's no rule book because there's never been a time where we had COVID, see everything go this way. Then the rebound, everything went this way inflation and uh, interest rates rising, discretionary spending's a little bit tougher. So you've got this huge confluence of things and you can generalize to a certain degree about trends that we observe and they're all accurate trends. I don't know that we know how this summer looks until we get through this summer, that there's so many different disparate things impacting the way people are traveling or not traveling, but primarily traveling that we've never been here before. You look through that lens, it's a little bit fuzzy. I, I, I can tell you from experience that gas is never really the reason that people stay home. They just change behaviors. But to your point, Brian, the restaurant costs more. The trinkets, the baubles, the bangles that you're going to buy with your family and whatnot, everything costs more. So that becomes a consideration. We haven't been there before, not concurrent with the higher fuel prices. And again, you've got the whole pandemic thing. It was here. Everybody stayed home. Now it's time to get out. Everybody went out. Parks just busting at the seams. So if there's a par this is a paradigm upon all paradigms. We've not been here. <laughs> so it's going to be interesting to see what the data shows at the conclusion of the season. Randy, 2008, 2009, right? That oh. was really the last like hiccup in the market. When you go back to that time, <clears throat> you, had the, you had the financial collapse, you had rising fuel prices. Mm -hmm. And, but I think the difference now is at that time, the base number of campers was significantly lower than it is now. Oh. Our base now is so much higher. Oh. Even if we see a drop, we're still ahead of where we were back then. I'll share an anecdote with you. So my, my mom lives off US 395 South of Reno. She's in across the California line. For the last two years, she's complained all summer long because there's just been unbelievable amount of traffic on the road. Here we are Memorial Day weekend. Just talked to her. She said there was hardly anybody on the road. It was empty. It was quiet because regular gas is like six bucks a gallon in California. And I said, and there's a KOA right up the road. I said, well, how was that KOA up the road? She said they were full. Of so even though road traffic's down, people with RVs are still going out because where else are you going to go? You're going to go on a flight for a thousand bucks? You stay in a hotel? Let's go camping. Yeah, I think you're right. I don't think anybody on this call is worried at all about the RV industry and the oh, camping industry and how. <laughs> yeah, I, the I, RV. I'm not. RV I think industry, RV industry because you're going to well, see. Okay. You're going to see sales of. I RV. misspoke to be clear. Okay, yeah. I, I meant the campground industry, but yeah, like I don't. What I mean is, I think we're all pretty confident people are still going to go camping. It may not be in the numbers of 2021, but it's still going to be strong enough for a lot of people to have a lot of good years here. But I think it's. I think it's fascinating. Randy said, like, it really interests me. And it's a, it's almost a, a challenge to me to how do I market to these people and what are their behavior and where can I find statistics and how do I analyze it? And, and I think a lot of park owners are not really prepared for that shift in how do I market to locals when I've always been this park. And yeah. so we're getting a lot more calls on our end too for help. Not panic well, helps, but it helps. It's hard, it's hard to quantify emotions, right? Because sentiment drives spending. Sentiment drives all behavior. So do I feel generally good? Do I feel generally not that good? It's hard to quantify what the emotional status of the behaviors will eventually drive consumer action, right? So it is the Wild West. But to everybody's point, Mark, to your point in particular, 2007, 2008, entirely different planet. Nothing bears resemblance <laughs> now. And with a huge influx of campers, you're absolutely right. The massive 21 climb out was 
spectacular. I, we can't expect that to be sustained, but there's such a volume of pent up demand, a shortage of inventory. The industry is incredibly strong. It's just, you have to really try to understand where do I go next? What do I keep my eye on? What's the moving target right now? And that's, I don't know if that's data driven. <laughs> you try to, right? You have to try to apply some data to the matrix, but some of it is, I didn't know how this plays out yet. Yeah, but, yeah, but, it, but it it is data driven though, right, Randy? Like, oh, with, yeah, like yeah. that's even the benefit above 2007 and 2008 is I'll just use a really quick super example like Google Ads. Yes, there is a softening of reservations that we're seeing in some cases because I believe people are waiting, but they're still good. But we're still seeing that data trend of what I exactly just said that the national people who are looking for the keywords like I don't know Dallas, Texas campground and coming from other states are booking. And they're returning very well on Google ads, but it's the local people for we're drawing a circle around Dallas of 150 miles and campground near me that aren't returning yet. And so it is, all of this can be, is fascinating. It's really data driven. Mark knows it too, probably. And, and yeah, data, there's no doubt it's data. I, I, I misspoke when I said that a little bit earlier. Of, of course it's data and that's that it's the backbone of everything that we all do. But what I was intimating is the sentiment is something that's hard to anticipate because we don't really peer inside their heads and know what's driving their purchasing decision. But of course, data, data, the more the better, please. And I don't know, Brian, if you saw this, I, I caught a wind of it earlier this week, but Airbnb has rebranded themselves a little bit and redone their homepage and they actually have a yes. direct call out to campsites now on the homepage of Airbnb and in caves and all sorts of alternative accommodations. So whenever you see a big player make a change like that, where they've actually added our category as something on their homepage, that's something that your antenna should go up and recognize that it's obviously a good sign, right? Consumers are yep. looking for campsites. And th there's what caught my ear, Brian, is on the marketing front, because I agree with you. I think the biggest change for park operators right now is going to be a mental switch. The reality is they have not had to market for the last four years. People are just flooding in their doors. They may need to begin marketing going forward. And I think that's going to be the biggest mental shift for a lot of operators. No, please. Oh, I was going to say, I just think one of the, the interesting things that I'm seeing is the creativity of the campground owners to react on their own. I've got several campgrounds that are destination parks, like you were talking about earlier, Brian. And what they're doing is they're offering that you can book 14 days, but leave your rig on site for 30. So you basically, they're not given a monthly rate. They're still doing that daily rate, but because of gas, you can bring it there at the first of the month and leave it there, but you can come and stay for 14 days on site. I thought that was brilliant because you're yeah. not driving back and forth. People are camping local. And so it makes it so easy for them to leave work on Friday afternoon and go to that campground. That's smart. How are they doing that, Sandy? Are they leaving the, the site, the rig on the site hooked up? Yeah. Yep. They're actually leaving the rig on the site and it they do have to pay their electric because they're there for 30 days and sometimes they're leaving it on. But it still is, it's still awesome to be able to just go every single weekend, take three, three long weekends. One of the campground owners I was talking to said that most of their people will come in on Thursday and stay till Sunday. They're still going to work on Friday because they're local. So they're just driving from the campground, going to work and coming back. And they're doing four days of camping to get in there 14 to 16 days. Because I think it's a window of 14 to 16 days that they can do and leave it on site for 30 days. Yeah, I like that. Smart. That's quite a cool idea. 
that what you just said, Mark, people are just flattering in on campsites. That was the same here in Europe. There were so many uh, campsites that, that didn't even bother doing sales or marketing because we are fully booked. And then all of a sudden in the last two years, they saw they, that they had to do an awful lot of work, marketing, sales, offers to get people to the campsite. And this year, I think that's quite interesting. I see first campsites that try to change their target market. They were fully booked in July with people from Holland, for example, and they don't want to take this risk anymore to, to keep the leg just on this one market. And they start doing uh, their marketing on, on different markets. They try to get a little bit more German, a little bit more, so to, to spread it a little bit more. Or campsites that were filled with families try to get more seniors. So campsites are playing with target markets at the moment. And they learned in the last two years that they sometimes have to do an awful lot of work to get the people to the campsite. And thank God, uh, this year seems to be near to 2019 in turnover. And we expect next year to, to top this great year 2019. But in the years between, we learned an awful lot. And the way how to get your clients, how to get your guests to the campsite really changed. I love it though, Ivar. Like, I can't tell you how much I love it. Like I got so sick and tired of four years for just like people calling me, but wanting me to post on social media and answer their review responses and do nothing else. I want to do something challenging and cool <laughs> and fun and geeky and all kinds of that. It excites me, Ivar. Yeah. But so Brian, I'm glad said, people are going. Yeah, it, it was boring. <laughs> like, can you do a post for me? And yeah, please do it in Holland. And it didn't even matter what you do. And all of a sudden they have expectations. They know target markets. They want only... <laughs> They found out they want to post on Sunday and they want me to call this one region. And all of a sudden they, they start thinking with us how to do the best marketing. And that, that's, that's awesome. Yeah, I love it. So what else is new, guys? Let's talk about something happier than inflation. <laughs> what else has come across your desk recently in the last month or so? Oh, Randy, I know you were on the glamping call earlier. You were talking about some differences in, in pro forma cap rates. Do you want to touch on that briefly? I think it's a fascinating thing with the unit occupancy. And well, it's an interesting phenomenon. I live in broker world a lot of my days. I live in many worlds, but there are those who've said that about me for years. The truth of the matter is... Everything changed literally two months ago. So if, if somebody was thinking about buying a campground or developing mm -hmm. one, there was a lot of cheap money around and it was hard to get capital placed in on many occasions. It's never been easy. It's always been more science than voodoo. And there's a lot to the process. What's different though, is with higher interest rates, the cost of funds is more, is a lot more expensive. And so if you're an investor looking to acquire a campground or to build one or even to expand one, whereas in the past, your financial model might say, I'm going to hit X amount of occupancy and revenue targets. My cost of funds are X. It's now more expensive to do that. And so that fundamentally changes certain dynamics. For example, in the glamping world, whereas somebody may have had 30 acres in the past and they wanted to have maybe six sites per acre and keep that kind of rustic outdoor type of feel. They're now saying for my economic model with the cost of funds being higher, I need to maximize unit counts. I need more rentable units. Well, when you do that, you dilute the glamping experience by having people closer together. So that leads to maybe that 20 acres isn't enough. Maybe I need to have minimum 30 acres. So your acquisition cost goes up, but to maintain what glamping should be, which is again, the outdoor pure experience and not stacked on top of one another. You have to look at larger land. You have to look at utility placement. You have to look at your density. And just it, 
some people don't really think a half a point interest makes a big difference or three quarter point interest. Man, does that make a huge difference? It, it upends the entire financial model about what you want to do. Having said that, <clears throat> the contrarian in me says it's a good thing because things were trading at very low cap rates, higher costs. And there was just this perception of it's always going to be great. And sometimes it takes that reality check to make people sit back and say, I really can't be quite as much of a dreamer. I've got to be a hardcore financial analyst. I've got to have some chicken little in my rationale to make sure I'm covering myself. So it forces investors and developers to become a little bit more rigid in their discipline about how they evaluate opportunities, the cost of expansion, the cost to acquire. I would argue that indirectly, that's a good thing that lends to smarter decisions in the long run. But <clears throat> that literally is evolving every single day because the crystal ball is fuzzy. But if it makes you make better decisions that are not quite as much based on fluff, I would argue that's a good thing economically in the long run. And you like it, don't you, Randy? Like you're, you, that's, that's like your marketing for me, right? It's challenging, isn't it? It's something to do. Well, it's a lot more challenging, which is the fun. Of course, when you start trading at lower values, it hurts you as a broker because things don't sell for as much as they did. However, that's okay. It really is okay because if you're sensible about what you do and bring some sanity to the process and can actually help people, which is what UPB wants to do, be helpful, you build trust and trust is the relationships that, that drive this entire industry as we know so well. So it's, I would love to say, hey, 3% cap rate, let's all get filthy rich, but it's not sustainable is the point. What's sustainable is the health of the industry and continued development, continued momentum. That's what's good for the industry. And with the growth of the industry comes opportunity for everybody. Yeah, absolutely. I agree with that completely. Sandy, are you any, any change in your clients that you're seeing? Buying, selling, swapping? Concerns? I have seen a slowdown in a lot of the new commercial developers moving over, trying to build parks. It used to be I talked to 10 or 12 a month. And now it's probably trickled down to about eight. So I'm not sure what's happening there because they're still not investing in building new big high-rise buildings because we still have people not wanting to go back into a building to work because they've learned they can work from home. It has nothing to do with the pandemic. They just want to work from home. But I think a lot of them also, these are some of the repeat ones, have learned that they didn't know as much about building an RV park as they thought they did. And they found it to be a little bit more, you really, if you're going to build an RV park and you're a commercial developer, need to talk to somebody who knows the RV industry. Just because you can build a subdivision doesn't mean you can build an RV park. And I think a lot of lessons have been learned in the last two years by some commercial developers in that area. We had one park, the lady came out of commercial development, was the president of a bank for a while. She built a park, 211 sites, and every single site is in a direct right angle and her rows are narrow so two vehicles cannot pass at the same time and so it was completely done all of the utilities in everything before she even communicated with any RVer and the first RVer that came in said this is not going to work and it, it was too late she built her infrastructure so we had to be creative and what we've done is we're marketing her as a small rig only so she gets a lot of class B's she gets a lot of little pop-up campers and things like that. And she is doing well. She's in an area where she can do well. There's a lot of young people, but she'll never be able to bring in any big rigs into that park. Wow. 
It, yeah, happens. it happens a lot, Sandy. I agree. I've seen that on this end as well. And unfortunately, to your point, a lot of folks from a commercial mindset think about density and how many rentable spaces or how many doors can I get? So they will do their site design, what we lovingly refer to as a submarine farm. There's nothing unique or special about it. It's how many places can I get into that acreage because they're doing it from a spreadsheet and not from a real world application. We've always maintained there's nothing at all magic about the site count. It's the number of desirable sites at the highest occupancy and the higher ADR. And like you're talking about with Ad Park, there's some folks that say 200 sites is what I can get on this property. And they're far better served at 170 sites that are more desirable, more thoughtfully laid out with easy access, higher occupancy. So you see some of these submarine farms and there's no submarines in the farm. <laughs> yeah. Ivar, I'm super curious uh, if you know how, or maybe you could just touch on it briefly, not necessarily the ADR and the things I have no idea about. Probably you don't either if you do, but feel free to chime in. But how has the pandemic and the last couple years and what you're seeing now impacted? Do campgrounds trade hands as much as they do in Europe or over here as they do in Europe? Or how does that work? Yeah. The funny thing is that these stories could come straight from Europe. It's like almost exactly the same. There are, there are several campsite groups here in Europe. Some are owners of campsites, others have a, a franchise model. Most of them have a lot of investors behind them. And at this moment they are buying like crazy. They buy almost everything that uh, has the name campsite and then put their own idea on it and these parks look almost the same, same kind of pool, same kind of slides, same kind of pitches, same kind of accommodations. And what, what I noticed in the last two years, they um, were mostly in the southern part of Europe, the sunny part, and they went going higher. They bought parks in Holland and in Germany, what's not their main market normally, but due to the pandemic, to go to COVID, they saw that this is also a huge market. On the other side, there were two operators having own parks and we saw them selling most of these parks in the last two or three years because that wasn't their core business. And what is new, I think, is that we have more here in Europe. We have an awful lot of really big campsites that do the thing that Randy just uh, explained. They're like, okay, if we put the mobile homes like this, yeah, we could probably put 15 there if we're lucky 16. And then you only have the, the regulations of there have to be three meters between them thing, but one after the other, the more, the better. I must say most of these parks have great family facilities. So for families that might be not so bad, but it's had nothing to do with glamping. And that's what you see right now. Uh, a lot of investors buy smaller parks and make real nice, small glamping and boutique campsites out of it. So thank God this part is coming to Europe too. Yeah, you mentioned glamping and some of the nice accommodations and things they can do. And we were talking, I brought that up on the, uh, the glamping call. I really didn't get to finish my thought, Randy. You were there. And, and I, I guess I'll give a little bit of backstory here. So I met, I, I was looking for, I was moving into an apartment, which I told Mark and Sandy and everybody else before we started the show. And so I'm sitting here in this yard because they don't have it finished and fully built yet. But there's an 1100 square foot balcony on my new apartment. And so I wanted to do something cool because I'm not going to have a view like this. So I'm like, connecting with nature. I need a good backdrop for the show. I need all kinds of stuff. So I found this guy on YouTube who does like these luxury backyard designs or whatever in Portland. 
And he does the barbecue grills and the patio umbrellas and the paving and the pergolas and all those kinds of design, landscaping, plant consultations, all that kind of stuff, outdoor kitchens, et cetera. And so him and I were just talking about my balcony and, and then naturally this conversation diverged into glamping to where I'm thinking like, you're basically designing a, a glamping site without glamping accommodations. And if you just add that in, if you add a tent or a yurt or something like that, and you can plan around that and design around that, then you've got a whole nother niche business. And nobody could tell me that there's a guy who does this, like he does 3D designs remotely. There's no way that does this. And, and I think it's important to up and enhance and differentiate both campgrounds and glamping. And it interests me that there's been nobody who does this successfully nationwide yet. Thoughts, anybody? In, in my opinion, developing a campsite is not only how many RVs can I get here and, and how many accommodations can I get here. It's the whole campsite. It's how yeah. do you feel? How does it look? We are working on a project at the moment where we uh, could literally put 50 accommodations on and we will stay with approximately half of it. Yeah, and we will we'll make it more luxury. Each accommodation will get a, a, a hot tub or they get an outdoor fireplace or every, we even thinking about making one where you can have a cinema, a small cinema, the, the, the tent is doing perfect for uh, projecting a movie on, stuff like that. So we want to make something special out of it. And the, the consequence out of that is of course it won't. But to Randy's point, right? Like unit count, if you can make up that revenue, in other ways through landscaping or projecting a movie on a tent is really cool. Somebody needs to do that somewhere so I can go stay at it. But anyway, but creating, come up, coming up with unique ideas like that can help make up that revenue. Randy, do you feel like investors are thinking outside the box like that or is it still too early for them? No, more so than ever. They're definitely understanding the value of that because <clears throat> I think for any of us, Mark, Sandy, Ibar, we, we all live in and study this industry and consumer patterns and behaviors and and Mark, you've got such a great body of data for what people like and don't like when they're doing their, their camping. And I think it's a universal that's translating now, which is experiential villages, experiential hospitality. And it, that what I mean by that is when you lay out any kind of an RV park or campground, that there's nothing unique about it. And when you're in that site, you could be in Illinois or Oregon or Nebraska, because everything is the same and it's cookie cutter stamped. You haven't done your consumer any kind of good service. You've just provided a place to park, but not a place to stay. And so to your point, Brian, about the landscaping, bringing in some really cool hedges, some growing vines, something like give the apparent privacy type of thing. And the and Ivar, to your point, small uh, smaller site count but better amenitized and very better experiential value leads to higher occupancy. The, the number one thing with higher ADR, average daily rate, you can charge more and get the same revenue or better than a larger park that isn't thoughtfully designed. And more importantly, you're doing a better job for the consumer, and they're going to be extremely happy with you. They're going to be loyal to you. They're going to tell their friends about you. They're going to do the market, the viral stuff for you and say, this is a unique place. I'd recommend you stay there. When you've done that, you win. So to your question, Brian, the, the shrewd investors are understanding there is no magic to the site cap. Let's forget the discussion. What can we do with this piece of dirt that provides the best of all worlds? And I, I would, I've already touched on this, but Sandy and Mark, I, I bet you would have pretty much the same takeaway, no matter what part of the industry we're all in, we all, I think, understand 
different is better and better experience means happier people or better investment for the campground owner. Well, different and unique. You know, Sandy's background there, she's got a water park at that location she's at, right? So if somebody wants to come there, they know that their kids are going to have fun. And some owners might have a small park and like, why? I'm not going to build a water park. It, it's not cost effective. Well, you don't need a water park. I, I know a huge number of parks where they utilize the local resources. So some are on trails and you're saying it's just a trail. Well, name the trail, invest money in the trail, work with the local community to improve the trail, have running races and bike races on that trail, use the resources that are around you. And so what owners can do, here's some tips to, to, to Randy's point of view or his, his point. If you're going to put hedges up, don't just have site number one, two, three, four, have site <laughs> Bob, site Sandy and site Mark and give them names and make them unique and make it a fun experience. Because people want that. It's, it's actually, we're in the process of planning a trip this June. I don't know. It's, we sold our RV. We actually don't have an RV right now. So we're about to do a trip and stay at Airbnb. We picked the Airbnb because it was unique and it's on a lake. And it's, we can go there and stay and go kayaking and do all the stuff that you can do in campgrounds and RV parks and that you should be doing to promote. There's a, a really good example is Marcia with her park there in North Carolina. She built that park three years ago. Let me know this last week that she is currently sold out every single weekend this summer. Every single weekend, she's already sold out. And that's because she's done just that. She's made her place a destination, even though she doesn't have a water park. So park owners can do it. I think that will be the big trend this next year is actually creating destinations, uh, unique destinations, to Randy's point, unique destination, not just destination, but unique destinations around the parks. And that actually would go to what Toby O'Rourke mentioned a while back in an article talking about this is the time that our industry makes it or break it. Do we retain the people? Do we keep them coming in? I think the answer is yes, as long as we continue to create unique accommodations at our place. That's it. We need creativity, right? We need uniqueness. And and that's the benefit of, I can go into a park and tell you how to market. Randy can go into a park and tell you how to, how many units and pro forma and the investment type st stuff. Somebody else can go in and tell you how to develop it with correct angle sites. Maybe Sandy does that. And then somebody else can do the design and the landscape, but you need those experts and each of them have their own different perspective. I can't do it all. Sandy can't do it all. Randy can't do it all. But you can, like, it's really just creativity. I want to share this while you're talking about it real quick. And I wasn't planning on doing this, but let me see if I can share my screen real quick. There's a super cool glamping place that we work for that is exactly what you're talking about, Mark, from a creativity standpoint. Let's see. And, and, and one thing, Brian, no excuses. I don't have money to do so because it's not always about the money. It's be creative. And there is a campsite group in Italy that's called Vacanza Col Cuore, Holiday by Heart. You have to do it with your heart, with love. Be creative, and it's not always about spending a lot of money to make it special. No, because you don't need money, and this is a perfect example of that, too. This is Heidi Shar. I think they're in Broken Bow, Oklahoma. But, like, this whole park is themed around her dog, and every piece of copy on her website is written from the dog's perspective. And it's <laughs> fascinating. It is fascinating. The time I saw this, I was super skeptical, but it's genius. Like it's absolutely genius. Like she, like the, it's terrible for SEO copy to be clear, but it's fantastic from a user experience standpoint. And so, but but that's what I'm talking about. It doesn't take that much uh, to create those things and name them different ways. You just have to think outside the box. So, well, and look what just happened, Brian. Because what just happened in the show? That website got your attention. You remembered it. You mentioned it to other people. It's now been broadcast out for other people to to see so who's the genius on that one they nailed it it's yeah. unique therefore yep. memorable
<clears throat> the first park I ever managed uh, in the, the late 1800s. Sorry, I'm going to date myself. <laughs> it was the Oregon Trail, right, Randy? <laughs> it was the Oregon Trail. Yeah, Wag was the first RV. Uh, actually, the first park ever managed was in Texas, and it was this fabulous park, but it was just overgrown and overrun and whatnot. And long story short, when the owner got ready to buy it, the seller said, get all those rusty farm implements out of here so they don't clutter things up. And I said, oh, no, every rusty implement stays. We just drug out this old rusty farm equipment through blue bonnet seeds around the base of it. You know, my photos were taken by the rusty farm implements. It cost nothing. It was somebody else's junk, but it was a treasure because it, we call it the truly Texas RV park. And in the store, we bought souvenirs from local stores that were truly Texas. And guess what? They were all for sale too. So the decorations were for sale. So people were buying this stuff off the walls. We'd just go redecorate. It was an ancillary revenue source, but the, the thing that stuck was it was memorable. So somebody else's junk just became front and center photo op. So to your point, Ivar, sometimes it doesn't take the deep checkbook. You just have to look at different lanes that other people may miss and figure out how do I make it memorable and unique? So everybody talks about it. Yeah, Amen. absolutely. Yep. A hundred percent. And so uh, it's really interesting. I think there's a lot of creative people in this space that if they're given an opportunity to flex their muscles, whether they're owners or vendors or suppliers or, you know, consultants or associations or whoever it is that are really going to have an opportunity here to shine in the next few years, like they never had before. So I'm excited to see it on some of the different stuff people create. Well, just briefly, Brian, to turn to your question, there's, I've never seen a time where there were more owners, potential owners being more creative about thinking outside the box as it were and being very innovative and not just doing the commoditization of an outdoor hospitality venue but thinking how do i do this different and make a mark and that to me is one of the greatest things about this period of time of the industry the creativity out there is really epic yeah 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 i think so too and Randy, I've seen, I've run into now a few, uh, there's smaller capital groups that have just recently got in and started buying parks. So one of them owns six, another one owns 10. And, and it sounds, it's a lot, right? It's a lot of parks that they own. That's in the last year and a half, two years that they've acquired mm -hmm. those parks. But what's interesting about it is that the management insight, the, the folks running those companies are actually wanting to do that too. They want to be innovative, unique with those destinations. So that, that's a good thing. Obviously, one of the fears, if you go back a few years, one of the fears about corporations buying up properties is that they would become hotels and they would all look the same. And you're not seeing that. And I think that's because the smart operators, even on the investment side, are seeing that they can't do that. They need to be unique with their locations. And that's a good thing. That, that keeps the character of our industry going. Absolutely. Absolutely. Sandy, where are you at? Is that really a, a good water park? I feel like it, Mark said yes, people would always go to water parks, but like I've seen some dangerous, sketchy water parks at some yeah. older places. So that does that look pretty nice. That's just the kids' splash pad back there. There are two other swimming pools here. So it's a really nice park. It's a absolutely, it's a destination resort park. And so it is all in and you would not have known there was any inflation going on here this past weekend. So, I mean, people were spending money and visiting the bars and going to the restaurants, all that are on property. And so it was a very good weekend and, and everybody had a very good time. So 
I've noticed every time we talk to you, Sandy, you're always at those big, huge luxury resorts. Do you ever camp at small parks? I do all the time. In fact, my favorite parks are the ones where there's no concrete whatsoever. I love just the grass pad and just the trees and a fire on the ground. Um, but that's not who's hiring me to come help them right now. To be fair, they probably don't have enough internet for you to do the show from there. So uh, I, yeah. Hey, I try to bring my own internet, but I was going to say this is going in a different direction, but this is part of what I do on a regular basis for my job is trying to solve industry problems. And we still do have this big issue with having only one technician for every 4,000 rigs that are on the road. And I believe one of the ways to solve that is through our parks. And so I think parks could be really creative, especially potentially destination parks where they may not have another draw by finding people in their communities, a young college student or a high school student who's got a lot of aptitude. RVTI, which is the RV Technical Training Institute in Elkhart, is now offering online training to become a certified technician through level two. And it is drastically discounted. And so if you get someone who get, can get level one or level two trained, and then in your park, you market yourself and say, hey, while you're in the area, while you're camping, you can come here and camp. We've got a technician who will do, you know, any of your basic maintenance or check all your seals or do all those kind of things because campers are not being educated on what they need to do with these rigs. So 80% of the failures happen because they don't know what to do. If you can go to a park and camp and either get educated or have somebody do it for you, then that can really keep campers camping. And that's what we want to do. We want to solve a lot of these problems. And my heart's by campgrounds. And I believe campgrounds can solve the problems as well as increase their revenue as they're doing it. So and it doesn't take much, just a small space where you can give a technician a place to work. So that's one of the things when um, Toby was talking about in her keynote address this year, where she was talking about reimagining your space. And one of the things that I immediately thought of was some of the spaces that I've seen at campgrounds that we could reimagine as a maintenance bay. And there's lots of ways of doing that as well with these new technicians. There's mentors that senior technicians that would love to mentor these junior technicians. Everybody thinks that, oh, it's they're going to see them as competition. They don't. They are senior technicians are dying to get younger people into the industry because they're just overwhelmed. They've been working three years, 80-hour weeks, and no end in sight right now because of what's happened the last two years. So I always love to encourage campgrounds to be creative about some of the services, not just reimagining your physical space where people are going to camp to be unique, but being unique and think about some of the services you can offer that actually solve problems in the So I, I know next to nothing about this, I'll admit it, right? Like I'm learning more about the RV industry as we go, but my background is obviously with campgrounds for over a decade. But I have heard this common refraining, like there is a shortage of RV technicians. We need more of them. We need to put them through school. And so I'm probably not going to win any fans at RVTI, but don't discount the course. If you need text, give it away. Stop trying to make money off of it. They so actually, yeah, that's right. what's so neat about what, there's some other technical training schools that are out there that have been there longer, they're quite expensive. RVTI has only been around for a couple of years and okay. their sole goal is to get people trained. And so there are sponsorships, there are grants, and there are some really inexpensive. They are offering a special right now that I think for $300, 
You can take as many courses as you want online over the year. And you can physically go there or you can do it online either way. Now, that's a deal. The next comparison to what they're offering is $16,000 to get the same wow. training. And so it's there. That group there, they're in Elkhart, Indiana. They, you know, are sponsored by some of the other industry people because they know we have to provide this training. But what's interesting is we are so far out of scope now that we cannot train our way out of this problem. So we know we have to have other solutions. So we have to educate. We have to get the campers involved. And so those are opportunities too, even in partnering with a local tech one weekend a month to come out and teach campers about different things they can do to prevent these things from happening to their rigs. Because then you take away 80% of the problem. Yeah, that was my second point that I didn't yeah. get to, which is fine because you made a great point. I'm glad you broke in. But the second thing is like RVDA up here in Alberta, they had a, a weekend that Kara just went to as part of her job with her family, I think. And and I don't know, two, three weeks ago, they, but they, they shut down an entire campground for a weekend mm-hmm. and they invite people to come out and camp for free. And the whole weekend is teaching them how to maintain their RV and what it does and what this folks and how it does and whatever else. And I don't know if other RVDA people do that. I don't think anybody else does in Canada because we had a discussion about it in Ottawa. So I feel like it's a rare thing, but it's a genius idea. It is. And it's interesting because when you're talking about RVDA, that's your dealer association. A lot of the money they make is not just on selling rigs, but on maintaining them. But even they are saying we cannot meet the demand. We've got to find other solutions. And so that's why they're doing some of these things. Yeah, I don't know. I think RVDA Alberta has been doing it for a, quite a number of years, but you're right. Yeah, I think it, it's, there's innovative, creative solutions to everything. So again, I'm speaking from a place of ignorance with the RV industry specifically, but uh, Ivar, how does it, I know you don't have the same type of rigs, which you've mentioned several times before over there, you wish you did, but how does this kind of thing impact you guys as far as repairs and maintenance and stuff like that, education? Probably not because our RVs are just uh, half as big as yours. So we don't have, uh, we only have half the maintenance and I really don't know. Sorry. That's okay. I, I'm really in, into, into accommodations, into campgrounds, but RVs and uh, RV and, and maintenance. That's I really okay. don't yeah. know. But, but I could yeah. catch up and I could, could tell you next month. Sure. Yeah. I mean, I could, because taking a campsite and telling everybody how to maintain correctly is like perfect. Right. And and that's the thing. Like we've talked about even pivoting from the RV industry, just an educational standpoint. Randy and I have gone back and forth on this in some ways about educating owners and operators, but campers too. Joss Penny up in BC has this amazing program called Campers Code that he put together that teaches etiquette. I know, Mark, you've got a flyer on your website, I think, that people can download and and kind of white label and template to their campground and put around their parks. But it's how do I set up a tent and how do I put up my fire and how do I take care of my rig? And there's dozens and dozens of things that can lead to happier campers, less maintenance, and it's a team effort. And we need everybody to do it, not just the RV industry or just campground owners or just consultants like Sandy. It, it's it, the campers etiquette guide. You mentioned that. And it's funny because I was going to bring that up after Sandy mentioned it. All of a sudden, the last two weeks, like that thing is just blown up. It's been very weird. We're actually getting people directly reaching out to us for it. Just had an email this morning from somebody who found it online and was just blown away by that information. And it's available for free. It's a camper's etiquette guide. If you run a campground, you can download it, put your logo on it. And it's designed for first-time campers. Give them tips on how to be good first-time campers. If you scroll down on the homepage, there's a resources and links. Click on that. 
and you'll see it there. You can click on it and download it for the PDF. What I was going to say also on this, Sandy, in regard to the RV maintenance, there's also another big shift going on right now, and it's been going on for a while, but I'm actually seeing it take momentum now. There are people that are younger that are now going full-time because they can. And the big news this week, it has been the release of Starlink for RVs. That is, to most people who have a, a, a wired connection or providing Wi-Fi in their parks, they don't see it. Trust me, Starlink is the lit. If you are an influencer in the RV industry, all you have to do is a YouTube video about Starlink and you'll have 70,000 views. It's off the charts, popular with RVers. Done. So, That's the topic next week. Sorry, continue, Mark. Yeah. <laughs> so it has been very hot and Starlink announced a new plan for RVers. And, and the big news there is if you connect people on the road, our industry is just going to continue to blow up because <laughs> if I can work virtually and have a high-speed internet, I'm there all day long. And so that was big news this week and we'll see that over time. In addition to what Sandy's saying, the RV maintenance issue, I actually have a question for you, Sandy. You mentioned that we're we're across the Rubicon or whatever. We can't go back. We can't fix this. Can you go deeper? I'm, I'm misunderstanding what you're saying there. What do you mean? Is there no way to get enough technicians now? And so we as an industry need to figure out how to get people to do it themselves? Yeah. So the group that I was working with had some very smart people do a study. And basically what they found was if the rate of selling new rigs, even if it just moderated some, but it kept going. We are not in a position where we can train our way out of this situation just by trying to recruit new technicians into the industry because you've got a lot of older technicians who are retiring. There's a lot of things that went into that. So what we have to do to solve it is, one, begin to educate the new consumer. And as we educate them, we help to prevent those 80% of failures, which reduces the call. Then we have to be creative and do some other things that we are we can do to help after it's already happened. If we didn't prevent it after it's already happened, how do we reduce this the small inconsequential calls to our senior? And so we work towards that. And then the last thing is again recruiting more people into the industry. And then there's another fourth piece of that, which is. With so many people being mobile, if you break down, and it's not something that's going to keep you from moving, but you've got an issue, nine times out of 10, they can't get a technician to come to where they are and get the parts to repair it before they need to leave. So we need product spread out across the country so that it's available, which again, I love the idea of partnering with my campgrounds and saying, hey, you know that space that you used to use that you're not using anymore, that rec room nobody uses or whatever that is, how about convert that into a space where you store parts, you get paid to store those parts, and then your local technicians are right there getting those parts from you. You make a markup on the part. It just, it so works economically for my parts as well as working to solve these in, these industry issues because we have to keep, we want to sell more rigs. And if we keep having this negative impact because people can't get service, it's funny, the CEO of a company that's in the RV industry right now, very successful in the digital space, he bought his very first rig a year ago. He drove it home from Indiana and on the way home started having problems. He put it in the shop. It has been in the shop until last week. He planned a trip to Disney because he was guaranteed that he was going to get his rig back. Big old class A into the six-figure rig, right? Goes and picks up the rig all the way home. He can't get it over 50 miles per hour on the highway. 
And so he calls and they said, oh, while it was at Freightliner, we think they damaged something. Oh, jeez. Total guess. It didn't really happen, but he took it back again. And now he's without a rig. I mean, he's literally bought this brand new 2022 model that he bought at the end of last year and has never used it ever. And well, so that, you would think that's a, a, a unique story. It's not. I hear it all the time. And so we have to figure out how to fix some of these. I think what we're talking about is the solution, right? And Absolutely. obviously we're, it's very oversimplified to be clear. And I'm not in the RV industry and we're not saying it's anybody's fault, but we all need to work together from a campground perspective, from a consultant perspective, from a communicating on websites like I can do and Mark can do to Ivar learning the industry and going around and fixing the stuff himself. We can fly you over here, Ivar. We really need help. And, and then John commented, John Abbott commented here on, on LinkedIn and mentioned the dealers could do a much better job of pre-sale inspections to reduce the number of maintenance issues. I've had to help several folks resolve issues on rigs that they literally pulled from a lot to our park. And again, I don't want to dive too much into this because we're not going to say that it's somebody's fault or somebody could do better without that person being here to defend themselves but it's the dealers it's the manufacturers it's again everything we just talked about working together to reduce that stuff through education and other means that's the answer and it really is this massive growth how many industries have seen the kind of massive growth that the rv industry has seen in the last couple of years they were already growing and then they exploded and so nobody knew how to deal with all of this we and so I'm definitely not saying anything negative. Those things do happen, but it all goes back to, we grew so fast. We didn't have a chance to grow the infrastructure to be able to support that growth. And so now we're trying to do that. And it's not just, I was going to say, it's not just growth. It's also innovation on RVs as every year, RVs get fancier, they get neater. And so in a way they're always like little experiments on wheels, right? Hey, this is something new. So. You're obviously going to have breakdowns as a result of it. It's not, they're not producing the same RV this year that they were last year. So that's going to end up leading to those type of just issues that you're going to have with something yeah. that's rolling down the road like that. Yeah. And but the fact is that it, you have the lot quality, is it the quality of the RVs being sold? Mm -hmm. Six figures, you, you, you could expect something working or is it the people, how they handle this product? I think it's some of both, but a lot of what's happening with the lack of support for repairs and stuff is we've got a lot of people entering the full-time market or camping a lot every single weekend, but they're buying the lowest end camper, which is really designed to camp six times a year. You create an entry-level product to get people interested in camping and you create it at a level that people can afford to buy it and use it six or so, eight times a year. That's what the average used to be. The problem is you've got people buying that low end and then trying to live in it full time. And I mean, being towing an RV is like having it in a hurricane and an earthquake at the same time, literally. And so people complain, well, the drawer came open or the screw came out. Well, yeah. Have you seen a house after a hurricane or after an earthquake? That's what you're putting that rig through. They're not perfect, but boy, they're still the best way to enjoy yourself. And I wouldn't give it up for anything in the world. <laughs> I want a self-driving RV, Sandy. Can you make that happen? I am actually working with somebody who is doing that right now. In fact, I don't know if you've heard about SunTracks in Florida, but it's a location that's getting ready to open that it's all about autonomous driving. And this company has actually created a rig that has a unit that goes on the RV, on the towable, and a unit that goes on any car. It does not matter the size of the car or tow weight. 
and it actually will follow. It is the coolest thing ever. So right, we're going to talk about that next week because we ran out of time and it's a fascinating <laughs> discussion. I want to, or not next week, ne next month. I'm sorry. When you're back on, Sandy, we'll save it okay, for that. Okay, we'll talk about it next time. Because that's fascinating. <laughs> and then while in the month that we take to get to that next episode, I want to know how they can do autonomous repair too. You're going to solve the issue. Oh, <laughs> now you've got Self-healing like the Terminator robot. Exactly. That's what I yeah. I love it. It's done. We fixed it all. All right. Thank you. Anybody, any final thoughts from you guys? Mark, uh, Randy, Ivar, Sandy? There's always going to be final thoughts. Sorry. Go ahead. Whoever wants to go first. Oh, hey, it's, it's going to be, I'll say, okay, it's going to be a good summer. Go out and enjoy it. Bingo. <clears throat> Bottom yeah. line of the story, the industry is robust. It's strong. Some good financial planning is injecting itself back into it. It's good for the health of the industry. Best days are in front of us. Ivan, any final thoughts? Or are you already starting your training to come over here and help us? Yeah, I'm just on the website booking a flight. <laughs> it's only $300, Ivar. Like, I don't know what that translates to in euros, but I feel like it's a cheaper summer. deal. Uh, yeah. This is our season. Enjoy and be nice to your guests. Awesome. Thank you guys so much. I really appreciate you joining us for another episode of MC Fireside Chats. Uh, just as a reminder, we are available all the past episodes on mcfiresidechats.com. We will be available as a podcast shortly. Hear this week's episode on Google, Apple, Spotify, all those kinds of places. And we really appreciate you watching. We'll be back next week for another episode. Thanks, guys. Appreciate you joining us. Bye. Thanks for watching this episode of MC Fireside Chats, hosted by Brian Searle and Kara Sismadia. Have a suggestion for a future show or want to see your campground or company as part of an episode? Email us at hello at moderncampground.com. Join us next week for another episode. And don't miss the latest outdoor hospitality news and commentary from around the world at moderncampground.com.